Background Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 to 16 was presented by David Crabtree on August 3, 2015 at Gutenberg College's Summer Institute, Reunion, Tanakh and the Gospel of Matthew. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. PDF notes accompany this talk. Father, I thank you so much for all that you have done for us. I thank you in particular for the revelation that you have passed on to us, that you've given to people to record, and that that has been passed down through the centuries, and that we are the beneficiaries both of the writings that were written down and that we can read, as well as all of the work that has been done by countless people over centuries that we can benefit from. There's a sense in which we are at a privileged position in history that no one else has been at. We have the benefit of all the work that's gone before us. And it's a matter for, of us figuring out how to sort through what is the good in that and what is the bad in that and making good sense of the revelation that you have given to us. And I pray that you will help us this week to gain clarity on exactly what it is that you wanted to communicate in the Old Testament, how you meant to communicate it, as well as what you intended to communicate in the New Testament and how you intended to do that. We thank you very much for this opportunity and thank you for the clarification that we can anticipate. Amen. The first passage we'll be looking at is Isaiah chapter 7, and we'll be looking at verses 10 through 16, maybe beyond that. Who was Isaiah? We don't know a lot about him. He was a prophet to Judah. Oh, do you have the notes for this, by the way? The background to Isaiah 7, 10 through 16? So Isaiah was a prophet to Judah, which is the southern kingdom from about 739 to 690 B.C. Those are rough dates. It's hard to pin it down exactly. At this time, as you probably know, the northern kingdom had been separated from the southern kingdom for some time, the northern kingdom being referred to as Israel, the southern kingdom being referred to as Judah. So Isaiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom, Judah. He was well-connected in the palace. He seems to have been known people in high positions and interacted with them. He knew what was being discussed in the palace and in the courts. According to tradition, Isaiah's life was ended when he was sawn in two, as I recall, put into a log and then sawn in two. I think that's the way the tradition goes. What is the book of Isaiah about? There are a few themes that come up, resurface innumerable times in Isaiah. One is that Judah has been wicked, that Judah has departed from the way, that Judah has engaged in idolatry as well as social injustice is something that's hit upon a number of times. 
by Isaiah. As a result, God is sending judgment on Judah, and it's going to come in the form of foreign invasions, and that they will suffer as a result of this judgment. And he uses the image early on in Isaiah where he talks about, I have beaten you with the rod so many times that there isn't a place on your body that has yet to be hit, and yet there hasn't been a positive response. So more punishment is coming. However, another theme that is very prominent in Isaiah, and it is scattered throughout the book, is that this discipline will have the intended effect that Judah is going to come around and recognize God for who he is and embrace him. And as a result of that, there is a glorious future that awaits for Judah. And what happens in Isaiah is he'll talk about the discipline that's coming and the suffering that they are going to have to endure, but then he'll break in and talk a little bit about the glorious future that awaits them. But this is what's coming. And then he'll talk more about the discipline, and then, but this is what's coming. And as the book progresses, there is more and more about that glorious future that is going to be there, that's going to eventually be realized. Where does this section fit into the whole of Isaiah? And this is the kind of outline that I have come up with for Isaiah. But Isaiah is very difficult to outline. As someone says, the transitions are so gentle they're almost unnoticeable, and that tends to be true. But roughly speaking, the first five chapters are introductory material where he seems to hit on all of the themes that he's going to talk about for the rest of the book. Then in chapters 6 through 12, he gives prophetic warnings against forming an alliance with Israel and Aram. And I'll talk about the context of that in just a minute. Chapters 13 through 27 talk about the destructions of the nations and then it ends in the destruction of the world that is coming. And I'll just point out as an observation, it's interesting, most of the prophetic books contain a section where it talks about the destruction coming to the nations. That seems to be a part of the genre. The next section, chapters 28 to 35, there is prophetic warnings against forming an alliance with Egypt. Chapters 36 through 39, then it breaks in and there's some historical narrative where it talks about some of the things that had been predicted earlier in the book of Isaiah. And it shows how some of those things that had been predicted did indeed come to pass. In chapters 40 through 48, the emphasis is that God alone is in charge of history. He's controlling it all. It's all going according to plan. 49 through 55, there's where the servant songs are. There, let's see, I think there's five of them, where it introduces this mysterious servant. It doesn't make it clear who the servant is, but as time, as you read through the section, there are more and more clues as to who this servant is, and it seems to be pointing to the Messiah and in particular to Jesus. Then the last section, 56 through 66, the emphasis is on this worldwide reign of righteousness that will come to be, in which 
Israel, both Judah and Israel, the northern kingdom, will play a key role. Okay, so that's the book as a whole. In this particular passage, the context is Isaiah is coming to the king, Ahaz, king of Judah, and he's making his statement to King Ahaz with respect to what King Ahaz ought to do. Okay, here's the situation. At the time in which Isaiah is speaking, things are very ominous in the Middle East. There has been quite a bit of change in just a short period of time. There are three kings in the region who have died and a new king has come to power. And whenever there's a change in king, then there's both unrest, because anyone who has grievances that have been building up sees this as an opportunity to have their voice heard in one way or another. There is unrest. There is also quite a bit of change that happens naturally when power passes from the hands of one person to another. New policies are put into effect. So quite a bit of change in a country... But when you have three kings of significance in the area all being replaced within a two-year period of time, that means a lot of uncertainty and a lot of the instability, and that's what was happening at this time. And in particular, we have a new king coming into power in Assyria. And everyone looks at that as an ominous sign because in the past, Assyria has been a world power, And they were particularly brutal and particularly aggressive. And when the new king came to power in Assyria, everyone in the Middle East suspected that there would be trouble in the near future. Because if he got his act together, if he was able to mobilize the forces that were there within Assyria, they would be a power again and they would be on the march. And they would march to the West, because that was what all of the predecessors had done. So, people in the Levant, in Judah, in Israel, in Aram, in all of those areas, they're looking at their newspapers, and they're seeing events happening, and they are kind of on edge. They're trying to figure out, what should we be doing? And it seems to me that something that is a similar kind of phenomenon that we can think about in contemporary times is the Arab Spring. When that started and then began to develop, you could see it develop. At first, all the news in our news outlets was positive. Oh, this is a great thing. But as it developed, it became clear that it was at least not all positive. And there was a potential of increasing trouble. And that increasing trouble has increased as time has gone on. But there's a sense of unease because you don't know what's going to happen there. And that's what they were experiencing at this time, a kind of unease. So what were they going to do? They knew if Assyria comes, as is true with any invading army, conquering army, you have two options. You either give up, You just surrender, and if you surrender, that means you will be paying heavy tribute on a yearly basis. So that means a significant portion of what your nation produces, that will just be taken away every year. If you don't submit, 
you resist, then the possibility is they're going to come in and you are forcing them to go to a lot of trouble. They're going to have to besiege you. They're going to have to do all this mean, nasty stuff. And they don't like it. They don't like to be troubled like that. So they are going to take it out on the the country that they conquer. And so what that country suffers as a result of having resisted will be far greater than if they were to capitulate. So that's your choice. Slavery, that is having to pay tribute, or death and destruction, and a more rigorous kind of slavery in all probability. Okay, so that's what they're looking at. So the people of the Levant, the country's Levant, they're thinking, our only chance to resist Assyria coming is we are going to have to form an alliance that is so big that we will be able to withstand Assyria coming. Israel, the northern kingdom, and Aram, they decided to be the ones who formed an alliance, an anti-Assyrian alliance, to stand up against Assyria. In order for that to be big enough, they need the others to join in. They want Judah to join this alliance. And Judah has been resistant. Ahaz has resisted. And Isaiah is coming to Ahaz and saying, don't join the alliance. Israel and Aram have decided they are going to attack Judah. If it will not join them, they will attack Judah. They will depose the king. And they will put a king that's much more cooperative on the throne. And then they will get Judah into the alliance. Okay. So in the passage that you're looking at, it talks about Aram being encamped in Israel. So their forces are joined just north of Judah. They're coming. And it's at that time that Isaiah speaks to Ahaz and says, don't join the alliance. What the kings of Aram and Israel say they're going to do, that will not come to pass. Just some comments about the text. It mentions a child that will be born, and he will eat curds and honey. You can look at verse 22 with respect to that, and you'll notice that that section 17 through 20 describes a situation in which apparently there has been a devastation, so probably an attack, in which the population has been decreased such that there is more food available per person. So you can take that into consideration when you're looking at the passage. The second thing to note is in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, it talks about another child being born with prophetic significance. And the third thing of note is in Isaiah 8, 18, he says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. I'm just pointing these out without further comment. Just these have to be taken into account when you're looking at the verse that you're looking at because otherwise it would be too easy. You haven't mentioned, am I wrong in thinking that Ahaz was thinking as an alternative to joining that alliance, that he would ally himself with Assyria, that they would protect him against the two countries. Right. That's probably what he was thinking. That is what happens. Later on, they do ally with Assyria as their way out. Is there a modern country that correlates with Iran? 
Assyria. So, and Assyria is different from Syria. Assyria was located in <laughs> what is now ISIS-controlled territory. Anything else? Okay.